All right, this morning, before we actually get into 1 John chapter 3, I'd like to tell you a story. It's a story about my first girlfriend. So uh, my first girlfriend, really fun, godly, adventurous, cute, really cute, um, brunette who I met my freshman year of college. And we had met in a speech class. And in the summer of 2001, we actually ended up in a summer school class together. I wasn't mad about it. Um, in case you're wondering why I'm talking so fondly about my first girlfriend, it's because she's sitting right there. Um, yes, <laughs> yes, my first girlfriend was Lindsay. Yes, I literally had only one serious girlfriend. Um, yes, I am still just as smitten and just as sappy about it. And yes, I did ask her permission to tell this story because I'm not stupid. So, back to the summer of 2001. Summer of 2001, we're in this summer school class together, and on one sweltering South Carolina evening, if you've ever been in South Carolina in the summer, you know that usually the number of humidity is higher than the temperature. So it's like 97 degrees, probably 99% humidity. One sweltering South Carolina evening during that summer school class, we were sitting out on the grass behind her dorm room, and we were watching the sunset, talking about our study materials, interspersing that with conversation about life. And our conversation veered into our personal faith journeys. And we were talking about how we had both come to know Jesus. And Lindsay told me, as we were talking about that, that she really often struggled with assurance of her salvation. You see, Lindsay had actually been raised in an environment fairly similar to me, where a lot of emphasis was placed on the details of your conversion experience. Like, did you have a particular date that you could remember? And maybe you had written it in your Bible when you prayed a specific prayer. And did you believe and repent in a very specific way that you remember? And Lindsay couldn't remember that about her experience. And she was really struggling with this. And she very vulnerably asked the question quietly, what if I didn't do it right? And my answer surprised her. I looked at her and said, you didn't do it right. And I remember the momentary look of confusion and even some shock on her face, maybe a little bit of annoyance. Um, before I continued, I said, you didn't do it right, but Jesus did. And my point, and what I am still so passionate about today, is that nothing about our conversion, nothing about our salvation depends on anything good or right that we have done. Our salvation depends entirely on Jesus doing everything right and God accepting that on our behalf. Not whether we prayed the right prayer, not whether we repented hard enough, not whether we remember the date, none of that ultimately matters. What matters is what Jesus has done for us. And that theological truth of the sufficiency of Jesus for our salvation was my best attempt at offering assurance of salvation to my girlfriend who was really struggling emotionally and spiritually with her position before God, her assurance of salvation. And she said many times since then that that conversation we had that night was really very instrumental in her faith journey and in grounding her faith in Jesus. And I am really grateful 
that God gave me the opportunity to play that small part in the spiritual journey that he was walking her through. And as much as I am grateful, and as much as I still believe exactly what I said that night, I realize now, 22 years later, that I actually missed something. I missed something important that night. I actually did that night what I fear I have so often done, and that is logically and theologically accurately address the theological angle of someone's spiritual struggle without actually acknowledging the emotional burden that they are carrying as a result. You see, when Lindsay asked me that question, what if I didn't do it right? She wasn't just posing a theoretical, theological question to me. That question was evidence in that moment that she was genuinely scared that she might not be a Christian. There was emotional and psychological fear underlying that quiet question. And I am really thankful that God's grace is greater than our shortcomings because that night and many times since then, I failed to understand that our faith journeys are so much more than just spiritual and intellectual. There is a huge emotional peace that God builds into us as we are made in the image of God and we are emotional and intellectual and spiritual creatures. And I had the opportunity that night that I missed to actually address the emotional and psychological struggle that she was facing as a result of the spiritual struggle that she was undergoing at that point. Sometimes what we need when we are struggling spiritually is not just a correction to our behavior. It's not just a clarification of our theology. Sometimes what we need is emotional comfort to ease the crippling anxiety that might be overwhelming our hearts at that point. And so this morning, that's exactly what our passage offers us. Comfort and assurance for our anxious, fearful, and sometimes self-condemning hearts. Now, if you have been with us through this study of 1 John, you may be feeling some of that anxiety this morning as you reflect back on all that we have learned in the first three chapters. We've heard some pretty heavy truth through just these first three chapters that may have you wondering, what if I'm not doing this Christian thing right? What if I'm not truly a child of God based on what my heart is telling me about my life? I mean, so far in 1 John, we have seen evidence in every single chapter that maybe we're not actually Christians. In 1 John chapter 1, John said that if we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Ouch. In chapter 2, John says that whoever doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In chapter 3, John rather shockingly asserts that anyone who practices sin is of the devil, and this is how we will know God's children from the devil's children. So good news, you might be a child of the devil. Not very encouraging. And just last week, we read all about how hatred, just hatred for someone, is actually the seed of murder in our hearts, and that lack of compassion, lack of loving each other in word and deed is a warning sign that God's love doesn't reside in our hearts. Now, we have talked multiple times about John's use of strong language and rhetorical extremes in this apocalyptic style of writing that he's using. And academically, sure, that makes sense. 
but I'll level with you. Knowing that in my head doesn't necessarily make me feel better when I read these kinds of passages. For many of us, we read these things and our hearts start accusing us. Our consciences, notwithstanding anything that we intellectually believe or remember about our walk with God, our consciences just start ticking off all the ways that we have failed. All the ways that John's description of darkness and sin apply to us. And we start to feel that anxiety rise that maybe we're not actually children of God after all. In multiple other places in this letter, John has given us rock-solid theological assurance. He gave us assurance in chapter 1 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we have assurance that God does actually forgive our sins. There's light. This is much easier to read now. He's given us that theological assurance. He gave us assurance in chapter 2 that Jesus is actually our advocate before God, that Jesus has atoned for our sins and for the sins of the whole world, that's all great theological assurance. But those theological truths don't always calm the anxiety that we are feeling. And I think John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to actually wrestle with that anxiety, with those feelings of self-condemnation. But he doesn't want us to wrestle with that for too long. And so at the end of chapter 3, starting with verse 19, John essentially takes a pause from his deliberate extreme apocalyptic style and he takes a step back to address the emotional feelings of failure and inadequacy that we may be feeling as we read this letter, even as we are sincerely trying to follow Jesus, okay? What he's writing here today assumes that we are trying to follow Jesus but we are feeling that anxiety from a self-condemning heart that says, I don't think you're actually a child of God. And he addresses that here. John writes in verse 19 of chapter 3, and I think we'll have this passage up on screen, this is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him, verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us. John knows that our hearts will condemn us. He knows that we will feel overwhelmed by our failing to always love one another in action and in truth, as we read about last week in verse 18. And so he says, folks, this, this is how you find assurance even when your own heart is condemning you. This morning, looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, the end of the chapter, we're going to answer the question, how do you find assurance when your own heart is condemning you. Now, while John is going to address the emotional state of our hearts, he's actually going to do so in a very rational, logical, clear progression that we can follow through these verses in 19 through 24. It's almost like John lines up a set of dominoes, and each domino has to fall in our hearts for us to experience that emotional assurance of our hearts that Jesus wants us to have this morning. And so, we're going to look at those dominoes this morning. But we're actually going to look at them in the order that John presents them, which is from the last domino to fall back to the very first one that is necessary for us to really have this assurance. So we're going to start in verses 19 through 21. And the first domino that has to fall is this. Assurance results 
from confidence in God's power and knowledge. Okay? Our assurance of salvation results from confidence in God's power and knowledge. Look at verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. When your heart, which as John describes it here, really seems to be your emotional conscience, when your conscience is accusing you and condemning you and overwhelming you with doubts about whether you belong to the truth, as he says in verse 19, whether you can stand before him, as he says later in that verse. And standing before him means going before God in prayer or in worship. When your heart is condemning you and discouraging you from standing before God, here's what John says to do. Remember that God is greater than your heart and he knows all things. Now, if you're like me, I read what John says there, at least the first time I read this, and my initial reaction was, nope. That is the absolute last thing that I want to be reminded of when my heart is condemning me. When my heart is already reminding me of all of my failures, the last thing I want to be reminded of is that the God who knows all things knows every single one of my failures. How is that supposed to be reassuring to us? The answer is that John doesn't emphasize here God's knowledge of all your failures, which he certainly does possess. John's answer here is that God knows all things. God is greater than my heart, and he knows all things. In other words, this heart that is seeking to condemn me, God is greater, God is more powerful, God is a better advocate and encourager than my heart is an effective accuser. Okay? God is greater than my heart, and he knows all things. He not only knows my failures, and yes, he knows those better than I do, he also knows everything that Jesus did about those failures. He knows everything that Jesus did to purchase redemption for me. He knows that I have walked with him. He knows that he has chosen me. He knows my, my Christian life and my desire to serve him. He knows all of that. And John here reminds us that the God who knows all of those things is on my side. He's greater than my heart. He knows all things, and that is intended to be an encouragement to us. Unlike my heart, God has the full picture of Rand. He has the full picture of each one of you, and he's done something about that full picture in Jesus. He knows that. Now, I'll also add here that there is a really fascinating conflict sort of a grammatical conflict that's built up in these two verses, all about knowledge. And this is something else that helps encourage us. You find in verse 19, it says, this is how we will know that we are of the truth, okay? Greek word for know is used there. It's also used in verse 20, where it says, God knows all things, exact same word, okay? That's really easy to see on the surface. What we don't see is something that John wrote in Greek that we don't have a good translation for that makes it sound the same. But right in the middle of these two verses, it says, whenever our hearts condemn us, that word condemn is the same word for no with a prefix on the front. John is making a play on words about knowledge. He says, your head knows one thing, your heart knows something else, and that version of no really means to know against, to accuse, to condemn. So your heart knows one thing, your, your head knows one thing, your heart knows something against what your head knows. And in most cases, if you just leave it up to your intellect 
and your emotions, your emotions are going to win every time. Okay? I'm in marketing. I happen to know that people make decisions based on emotions, not, what, not their head knowledge. Emotions win every time. If you've ever struggled with anxiety, if you've ever struggled with panic attacks, you know that your head can be thoroughly convinced of something, but your emotions run haywire over what your head knows because our emotions are powerful. That is how God has made us. But in this case, God ensures that it's not a fair fight between our emotions and our head knowledge. God steps into the ring where our emotions are putting a beat down on what we know about ourselves and what we know about God. And God steps in with his infinite knowledge. He steps in and he says, I know you. I've known you from before the foundation of the world. In fact, I chose you and you've been walking with me. And these accusations from your sensitive heart change nothing about my love and my acceptance of you. My knowledge is bigger than yours. He knows that about you. And John goes on to write in the next verse, in verse 21, he says, Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now this is interesting. John has just described how to begin silencing your self-condemning heart. You do that by remembering God's power and his knowledge. But to the extent that our hearts have actually been legitimately accusing us, and that happens when we have unrepentant sin in our lives, John has already told us how to deal with that kind of guilt, that kind of legitimate conscience bothering us, two chapters earlier. Back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John does want you to have a clear conscience before God. He doesn't want you to ignore your heart. He doesn't want you to ignore that condemnation. He wants you to evaluate it. And when it is legitimate, he wants you to confess your sin. He's already stated that. He wants you to find forgiveness and assurance in God. Because while your condemning heart can't actually rob you of your eternal security in Christ, your heart can keep you from coming to him as your father when you don't have confidence and when you are feeling that guilt. I can relate this to earthly relationships. How many of you ever had that common experience as a kid where you got caught disobeying by your mom and then your mom spoke these words, wait until what? Your dad gets home, right? Wait until your father gets home. I experienced that some as a kid. Not very often, actually. I was a pretty good, compliant kid. And most of the time, I really looked forward to my dad getting home from work. He usually got home at 5.15. His office was only about five or 10 minutes from our house. And I was excited for him to get home because it meant that we would have dinner, usually at 5.30. We would be done with dinner by about 6 or 6.30. And then we would still have hours of daylight to go out and play catch, to work on a project in the backyard, maybe to go swimming at a local pool. I looked forward to my dad coming home. But on those occasions where I was an absolute jerk to my sisters or to my mom, and yes, that happened, um, let's just say that I was less excited about my dad coming home. Maybe I had wanted to go out and play catch with him. Maybe I had wanted to go to the pool. But those hopes would vanish because I knew that I was in trouble. I knew that I had disobeyed. I knew that I had created a breach in that relationship, though I would have never used those particular words. I knew that something was wrong. 
and therefore I was not excited about being in the presence of my father. That's the picture that John is giving us here. He says when your hearts don't condemn you, when your conscience is clear, you do have confidence before God to be before him. You can come to God in prayer. You can come to him in worship and not have your sin blocking that relationship. John's point is this. Deal with your sin. Seek God's promised forgiveness. And then if your heart keeps throwing doubts about whether God actually forgave you, whether he actually accepts you, then confidently run to your heavenly father, not away from him, because his power and his knowledge far exceed your own sensitive heart. Assurance results from confidence in God's power and knowledge. That's domino number one. But how do we get that confidence? How do we get the confidence that can overcome our self-condemning heart? Well, the second domino is this. We find this in verse, the end of verse 21 through verse 23. And that is that confidence in God's power and knowledge results from a life of love. Confidence in God's power and knowledge results from a life of love. Look at the end of verse 21. We have confidence before God, verse 22, and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. You want to have the kind of confidence in God that can silence the self-condemnation of your heart? Then live the life of love for God and others that Jesus commanded. That's what John's telling us here. Now, let's unpack this. If you just read verse 22, okay? If you just read verse 22 without the end of verse 21, you get the impression that John is saying that keeping God's commands and doing what is pleasing in his sight will somehow earn you positive answers to prayer. In other words, like, if you scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours. Quid pro quo. God's like a vending machine, if you read this without the context. But if you look at the end of verse 21, John says that we have confidence and receive what we ask from God because, and what he describes next is really describing this, our lives and our wills are aligned to his. As we follow Jesus, as our lives and our wills are aligned to his commandments, if our wills are aligned to him, then we are going to ask for things that are according to his will, and we are going to see those answers to prayer because we are asking for what exactly is a part of God's will. That's his point. This is not a quid pro quo argument. This is an argument that as you follow God, you're going to be more like him, and as you're more like him, you're going to want the same things that he does. And then he's going to answer those prayers and you're going to have that much more confidence that you are like him. This is the opposite of a vicious cycle. This is a virtuous cycle, okay? This is a cycle that as you follow Jesus, you become more like him and he answers your prayers because you're asking for exactly what he wants. It's a beautiful thing that John is describing here. And then John goes on. He says what it looks like to keep his commands and to do what is pleasing in his sight. John defines that very clearly for us in verse 23. Verse 23 says, Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. 
We can tell from that last phrase, as he commanded us, and he's referring to Jesus here, as he commanded us, is a reference to what John and the other disciples had heard and several of them wrote about in the Gospels when Jesus was asked, what is the great commandment? Jesus answered, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There is a deliberate parallelism here. Years after Jesus had spoken those words to John and the other disciples, John gives some commentary on that great command here. What he's basically saying is that what it means to love God is that you can't love God unless you are believing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus Christ? John sort of self-defines it here. It means to believe that he is Jesus, that he is the God-man, that he is the one who has promised to come and save his people from their sins. What does it mean to believe that he is the Christ? The Christ means the chosen one the Messiah, the one who has promised to come as king, and he has proven that through his death and his resurrection in his victory over sin and death. He is the king. He is the God-man. He is the savior. Believing that is the very heart of loving God that Jesus described as the great commandment. And John actually describes these two things together as a singular command. They are part and parcel with each other. To love God is to also love your neighbor to love one another. You can't have one without the other. You can't say that you love God, and this is the point John has been making in chapter 3, if you aren't loving at least your fellow believers, if not the rest of your neighbors all around you in this world. And you can't truly love others well unless you are trusting in Jesus and depending on him for the power to do so. This is a singular command. Love God, love one another. That is how you align yourself to the will of God so that you have confidence in seeing his answers to prayer and you have confidence to overwhelm your accusing heart. John's point is that living this life of obedient, faith-filled love aligns us with the very will of our Father. So much so that we see our prayers answered, so much so that we experience confidence before him that silences the emotional turmoil of a self-condemning conscience. But where does that life of love come from? I mean, does this just mean you're supposed to try harder to love God? Try harder to love other people, especially those people who are hard to love in this life? Is trying harder supposed to get you here? I will confess, I have attempted the try harder version of Christianity, and it fails miserably. And so that's why verse 24 is so important for us. If this first domino that we're going to find in verse 24, if this one doesn't fall none of the rest of this works. So let's look at verse 24. We have found that assurance comes from confidence in God's power and knowledge. That domino has to fall. But that one doesn't fall unless we realize that confidence in God's power and knowledge results from a life of love. Life of love doesn't happen unless we get to this last one. A life of love results from mutual abiding in Jesus through his spirit. A life of love results from mutual abiding in Jesus through his spirit. Verse 24 says, the one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. 
John again goes back to this term that might be sounding familiar by now of remaining or abiding in Jesus and he in us. Between John's gospel and his three short letters, he actually uses this term 55 times. So this is something that's really important to John's theology of our relationship with God and with his son and with his spirit. Repeated over and over again in John's writings is this truth. We abide in Jesus. Jesus abides in us. The way that we know that we are abiding or remaining in Jesus, John says here in verse 24, is that we are acting like him. We are following his commands. We're keeping this command to trust in Jesus, to love God, and to love others. That's the evidence that we are abiding in him. And where does that come from? That evidence that he remains in us and the power for our living that life of love that shows that we are abiding in him is his gift of the Spirit to us. You see, Jesus is no longer physically walking around in Palestine, teaching and performing miracles for us to go and see him and have assurance that we are with him. But he's with us in an even better way. We're going to read here in just a moment, and this is just giving Pete a heads up to be able to find this slide. We're going to read from John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he is about to die and then rise again, and then a month and a half later, he's going to ascend to his father and leave this earth physically. And so he gives assurance to his disciples of how he is going to remain with them and in them. John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, John writes, And I will ask the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. Pause there. Remember that what we are looking for here is assurance when we know that we are of the truth, but our heart tells us otherwise, right? That's the assurance we're looking for. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the spirit of truth. And he goes on, the world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. The Spirit's work in our lives is the evidence that Jesus remains with us and in us, and it's this Spirit who empowers us to love God and to love others and even to desire that life of love. Folks, if you have the desire to follow Jesus, and even if it bothers you that you don't do a good job of following Jesus, that is evidence of the Spirit indwelling you and working in your life. This is what John wants you to remember here, that he has given us a Spirit to remind us that we are abiding in him and to help us continue abiding in him by obeying his command to love God and to love others. So let's follow John's domino chain here from the very beginning. We're going to start at the end, verse 24, work our way back up to verse 19, and see how this whole chain works. Je Jesus has given us his spirit. We find that in verse 24. His spirit enables us to abide in him by living a life of love for God and one another, in verse 23. Living that spirit-empowered life of love aligns us to God's will, which produces confidence in God's power and knowledge in verse 22. And in verses 19 through 21, that confidence gives us the assurance that we need when our hearts condemn us before God. You leave out any one of those dominoes 
and the whole thing doesn't work. You're left with an unanswerable, accusing heart if you leave out any of those things. Here's how that works. Stop listening to the Spirit. Stop caring about listening to the Spirit. Stop finding time in the Word and spending time with other believers where the Spirit can actually speak to you and influence you. Ignore that, and you're likely to be left feeling incredibly lonely and isolated and powerless. Stop intentionally loving each other. Stop caring about how you treat other believers and those around you. Stop actively trusting in Jesus. And you're going to find that you have a complete lack of power and knowledge to silence your guilty heart. You're going to be pursuing your own will, not God's will. You're going to have zero confidence in your spiritual life. And your heart is going to continue to condemn you. John is saying that for you to be convinced, assured, to experience that emotional peace and assurance that you are of the truth, that you are truly God's child, you need to be living in him and for him, and through him. That's how you find assurance for your heart. And so my mind goes back to that muggy evening in South Carolina 22 years ago, and Lindsay's vulnerable expression of fear and doubt about her relationship with Jesus as her conscience questioned and condemned her. Yes, Jesus' sufficiency to have done it all completely right was a key part of the answer to her question, what if I didn't do it right? But there was more that I could have said that night, more that I could have said on many other occasions when I've been posed this kind of a question by someone struggling with their faith. And to Lindsay, I could have said, I've known you for less than a year, but I've never met anyone who loves Jesus and loves others like you do. And I can't imagine how much more God knows about the state of your heart and what he's done in your heart. And I don't know any of that. And so your day-to-day -day life of living in and through Jesus is all the evidence that you need that you're actually following him. Despite the doubts and fears and things you can't remember, just keep living for him. That's the answer. And that's the answer to each one of you today. For each of you who want to follow Jesus, who try to love God and love others, but you find yourself failing and you hear the accusations of your own heart, this is true for you too. Take comfort in recognizing that your very desire, your seeking to follow Jesus, is evidence of his spirit indwelling you and empowering you. And God knows that better than you ever will. He is greater than your condemning heart. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep loving one another. Remain in him. John says this is how you will know that you are of the truth and reassure your hearts before him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what John has recorded for us here, both to challenge us, but to reassure us of your knowledge and your power, ultimately of your love to us shown in Jesus Christ and shown to us every day in his spirit abiding in us and enabling us to abide in him. Help us to simply keep following you, to keep loving you, to keep 
seeking after you so that we can love one another day by day and give us the assurance that our hearts need that we are remaining in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.